press go on this. There we go. The title of my thesis um, uh, belies the fact that my director of studies uh, is a Roman Catholic. Uh, so the, fact, the very fact that he asked me whether it was possible to find a theology of religious pluralism uh, in the Church of England. And I smiled wryly at the time and said, I don't think you're going to find a single theology of anything in the Church of England. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yes, that, so that was the intention, uh, was to try and use Alan Race, who it was an Anglican priest in uh, Leicester at the time that he wrote in 1983 his book uh, about uh, religious pluralism, um, suggesting that there was such a thing as a theology of this, that you could uh, look at a threefold typology, as he called it, um, for exclusivism, inclusivism, pluralism, um, and you could use this to explain different people's theologies uh, when it came to relating to people of other faiths. Um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the 1960s had had the Second Vatican Council, um, during which part of uh, their uh, debates and concerns about doctrine was to look at this question of uh, other faiths, um, which I think is is symbolic that it came in the, in the 1960s there, um, and I'll look at the kind of overview of that historical period as well. Um, for a, a PhD thesis, obviously I had to focus in um, on, and I was looking for this authoritative approach, um, and uh, so I ended up looking at, at general synod documents. So I'm a world expert in reading general synod documents, um, uh, which actually are genuinely more interesting than you might think a lot of the time. Um, and uh, as as, as my time progressed when I was looking at this, it came up in 1966, first of all, uh, with this question of multi-faith worship. That's when it first came onto the scene in terms of you know, and a recorded uh, national document there uh, at General Synod in 1966. Um, and uh, as I investigated that period, I found that there were broadly kind of four categories. There was multi-faith worship, which is what it had begun with. Um, there was the related category of mixed faith marriages. Um, and uh, as, a, as a priest in the Church of England, we welcome everyone in our parish to be married in our parish church if they wish to be, um, uh, which is um, something that in my talk I will call the kind of uh, the legal requirement almost of hospitality. Um, but obviously uh, that, that requires discussions and conversations to be had, particularly with people who come forward who might be from mixed faith marriages. So that was so multi-faith worship, mixed faith marriages. Um, the other case study was um, redundant church buildings um, and what we do with redundant church buildings. In 1972, the Diocese of Wakefield uh, brought to the General Synod a question about whether a church building that was no longer in use could be bought and used as a mosque. Um, and that's when it came onto the scene at that point. And then also, in the, which is the most theological part perhaps, um, in the 1980s, uh, there were a series of what were called the dialogue debates, which had been raised, first of all, um, in the 1970s with the World Council of Churches, um, who put forward a set of, of guidelines on dialogue. And these were then taken up by the Board of Mission in the Church of England um, and uh, considered in much more detail. And so those debates there are probably the, the more theological uh, of the debates in some respect. 
But what I'm interested in, I think, is the fact that um, the Church of England, as an established church, has a different perspective, um, theologically speaking, a lot of the time. As I've just said about the, the question of marriage, um, you know, the fact that there is that sense of kind of uh, the legal requirement for hospitality uh, gives us a slightly different perspective on, on uh, the question of religious pluralism I think um, and so that's what I'm looking at really is 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 there can you put the Church of England into any kind of category um, uh, based on specifically these case studies so that's what I've focused on <laughs> um, it, it turns out that speaking in one seminar uh, for an hour or so is there's no way that I was going to be able to get through all four of the um, case studies I really hoped I would be able to um, but in fact I've had to focus just on a kind of a, a preamble um, a discussion about the historical roots of, of the Church of England and that the impact of that um, and then also a look specifically at the case study of um, multi-faith worship so that's what I'm going to be doing I'm not I'm not going to be covering uh, the other ones um, but feel free to ask me about them later or maybe I should do part two part three at a different stage um, I'm going to open with um, a chap called Rob Bell American pastor um, whose book uh, Love Wins opens with this story. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church. I had been giving a series of teachings on peacemaking, and we invited artists to display their paintings, poems, and sculptures that reflected their understanding of what it means to be a peacemaker. One woman included in her work a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, which a number of people found quite compelling, but not everyone. Someone attached a piece of paper to it, and on the piece of paper was written, reality check, he's in hell. Really? Gandhi's in hell? He is? Do we have confirmation of this? Someone who definitely knows about it, without a doubt. And that somebody decided to take on the responsibility of letting the rest of us know. Of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place, and every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? It's a very good book. A very easy read. You'll read it in about 10 minutes, but uh, it's a very good book. Um, those in Rob Bell's congregation who would argue that the statement about Gandhi is strict but fair in biblical terms, um, and there are those who believe that, and it is worth considering the background of this approach to what are often referred to as other faiths, non-Christian faiths. As soon as you use that word, other, as Simone de Beauvoir first pointed out in her book, The Second Sex, as soon as you use the word other, you assume that there is such a thing as a normative position. And this normative is one that is generally agreed upon and rarely challenged. The members of Rob Bell's congregation who made the statement about Gandhi believed that the normative biblical approach to other faiths was established by Peter when he made the speech in front of the rulers and the elders and the high priest. He said in Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And indeed Jesus himself in John 14 
verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through me. More than this, Jesus's followers, let me just, how do I go back? I'm trying to move slides, do you know? Next. We've got it on, just there, perhaps. We've got it on, um, what do you call it? Slideshow. Have you got I'm it on slideshow? Sure. I think so. Slideshow. No, it's not because we've got a box up. Thank you. Yes, that. Technology. Thank you so much. <laughs> so more than this, Jesus' followers are urged to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of every human being, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the heart, if you like, of the Christian mission statement found at the end of Matthew's Gospel. So there is a single story of redemption which involves the fall of humanity and the choice by God to send his only son as a sacrifice for our sin. This is the narrative of human salvation and there is no other. Except of course that there are other narratives of human redemption. Perhaps the only one of these recognised by Rob Bell's congregation is Judaism. However, the New Testament states that the covenant and the law were not enough to redeem us, and so Judaism is superseded by Christianity. From the final decision in Acts about those disputes on circumcision and food laws, this much is clear. This normative approach to other faiths was described in 83 by the Anglican priest and theologian Alan Race as exclusivism. And you'll notice from the dates on this presentation, starting in 1966, that the theology of religious pluralism is something which seems to have come onto the scene in the 1960s. Certainly the attempt to systematise the way in which Christianity understands itself in relation to other faiths was a new topic, it seemed, for the 20th century. And the reason for this is clear. After two world wars and the mechanisation of transport, people began to move around the globe in greater numbers, bringing their own faith into their host communities. However, it is a simplistic approach, which we should be wary of. I say that therefore to myself as well, starting as I did in 1966. Before Karl Barth began to write about religion in the 1930s, there was in fact a wealth of material from amongst the Christian missionaries of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and these are worth long consideration and analysis. From my own perspective, the obvious foundations are found in Henrik Kramer's work following the 1910 Edinburgh World Missionary Conference. But there is so much more that could be analysed. For example, the Jesuit mission to China in the 16th century. Vincent Donovan, a Catholic missionary to the Maasai in Kenya in the 1960s, shows us that even in missionary terms, there are several different theological approaches to those of a different faith and culture. In fact, if we want to understand how Christianity relates to faith and culture other than its own, we could go further back to make a study of Islamic, Jewish and Christian scholasticism in the Middle Ages. Indeed, there's fascinating work to be done and is being done, uh, in some cases already, on diversity in the Old and New Testament itself. 
So although I have to have, although I have had to use a definitive time frame for my own work, I caution against understanding religious pluralism as a new thing in the 20th century, caused by a shrinking world. As you'll see, my approach is always historical, and my thesis is that the Anglican paradigm for religious pluralism was first fashioned in the forges of the Reformation. Intolerance and bigotism can easily flourish when people forget that the first Jewish community in Britain is recorded in 1066 and would have gone back along before that, and that Islam was present as a significant presence from the 18th century. This theological bait has very strong foundations. So, and I feel like I'm probably just teaching everybody stuff they already know in terms of the threefold paradigm, exclusivism. How do we define exclusivism? Well, I've given you the, um, the noddy guide, as it were, to exclusivism. Um, but after the First World War, Karl Barth was so shocked by the failure of the human enterprise that he reconfigured theology from the perspective of God alone. This was described by one commentator as a bomb dropped in the playground of the theologians because it was such a radical new perspective. In fact, it owes a great deal to the Calvinist theology that he was brought up with. All human beings are profoundly sinful. There is nothing that they can do to make themselves right with God. When it comes to considering the different faiths, Barth simply includes them with all human beings. Every human effort in religion to make themselves right with God, every form of worship or prayer or way of living is ultimately redundant unless God reaches down to human beings out of grace. This is a restatement of how deeply estranged human beings are from God. This perspective had a significant impact on the more Protestant wing of the Church of England and represents the theological foundation of what Alan Race described as the exclusivist position. According to this model, salvation comes from one source only, and that is faith in Christ, solus Christus. The second tenet is that this salvation won by Christ is only available through explicit, stated faith in Christ, which comes from hearing the gospel preached, fides et auditu. Christ is the truth which all religions seek, and there is nothing in history which does not point to him. Christ is the unique and absolute revelation of God, and as such, he is both the fulfiller of all religion and also the judgment on it. So for a Christian exclusivist, the purpose of dialogue is to bring non-Christians to faith. Ultimately, the only way that a Christian can respond to God's grace is to tell other religions about Christ and to encourage them to respond in repentance and stated faith. As we'll see when I turn to the case study of multi-faith worship uh, debated by Synod, this position is one which a large number of bishops, clergy and laity all hold with regard to different faiths. Which brings me to inclusivism. This theological perspective first comes to people's attention during the Second Vatican Council of the Roman Catholics, held between 65 and 68. 
Karl Rahner convened a number of meetings during this time, putting forward the view very similar to exclusivists that there is no goodness or truth in the world independent of its origins in the being and actions of God. But inclusivists also believe that salvation comes from Jesus Christ, at which point you ask, well, how are they any different to exclusivists? The key difference is that they admit that God's grace may be present in non-Christian faiths, and also that these religions in themselves may prepare non-Christian religious people for salvation. Rana went so far as to call people of different faiths anonymous Christians, kindly. (laughs) And so for him, mission was still essential in order to bring the gift of grace to explicit consciousness. Dialogue would allow Christians to perceive where Jesus might be present in other faiths. It would also offer a way of trying to explain how their faith was in some sense a preparation for the gospel. One hallmark of this kind of approach is the belief that God did not leave himself without witness in the years before Christ, and also that the Spirit of God is not contained to a single time and place. There is biblical evidence for inclusivism, particularly in Paul's speech at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, as well as, for example, the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. There is evidence of these ideas in many of the debates and reports which I analysed for my thesis. Pluralism. It gets shorter, actually, with each bit, so I'm sorry, but pluralism, perhaps more straightforward. This view has come about since the rise of religious pluralism de facto in many British and American towns and cities. John Hick is its most famous exponent in the UK, and he accepts that he stands on the shoulders of the analytic philosophers who encourage theologians and philosophers alike to unpick the nature and meaning of religious language. From this, he argues that there's a common search for truth between all the religions and that Christianity is not the final locus of truth, for Islam is just as likely to argue this. Instead, Hickport puts forward a Kantian idea of a world which is both phenomenal, made up of the everyday phenomena of our existence, and noumenal, which is his, the way he uses it as a spiritual world with a single transcendent eternal being whom he describes as the real, capital R. So dialogue in these circumstances is about enabling a true encounter between the spiritual insights of each of the religions in order together to go forward and discover what is real, capital R. In the debates and reports of the Church of England, there is some sympathy for this approach, but it seems as though it's always tempered with a view that Christianity is the locus of truth and that the incarnation and atonement are doctrines of truth and not myths. That said, a significant number of those who adhere to the pluralist position uh, are Anglicans and in many cases uh, Anglican priests as well. Um, So we think of um, Cupid, for example, and now other names escape me entirely from that whole sort of uh, liberal group of the 1960s. Um, Anyway, so it's... What I'm trying to say is that you don't find a huge amount of that position in the reports or even the debates of the Church of England, but it is present, I think, um, and it's present in terms of the main theologians, uh, 
uh, a lot of the main theologians, significant theologians of the time. John Robinson, um, for example, as well, um, an Anglican bishop. Um, so, the Anglican way. Um, the question that I raised in my research was whether the Church of England, in its unique position as an established church, has a particular theological perspective on the matter in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church was starting to develop. The first place to begin is the history which forged the Church of England as it wrestled with finding a way to tolerate the new Protestants in England whilst also holding on to those things which it cherished about the old faith. Richard Hooker, an important writer for the Church of England in the 16th century, argued that there was a middle way which could be charted between the traditional dialectic of reason and revelation. This via media allowed the Church of England to use the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition and reason to work out where it stood on matters of faith. However, unlike the Lutheran Church, for example, the Church of England did not define itself, it's, itself in terms of a significant body of doctrine as a confessional faith. Instead, as an established church, it was concerned with local matters, parish matters, how faith is lived out on the ground. Thus, if you want to try and find out what the theology of the Church of England is, you need also to consider its forms of worship, its prayers, its hymnody, its liturgy as a whole. It's no surprise, therefore, that the first time the question of different faiths came onto the radar of the National Church was a question about liturgy and multi-faith worship. At least that's my perspective. Elizabeth I, in whose reign the Church of England began to assume an identity as a separate church, was anxious to put the dangers of religious extremism behind her. As a result, those who considered themselves part of the old faith, as well as those who'd been part of the Protestant movement, were able to find a place in the Church of England. Through several centuries of new religious movements, the same is still true of this church, and you will find those who identify with both Protestant and Catholic as members, as well as those who identify themselves as post-Enlightenment liberals. What I found particularly interesting, and also actually, if I'm honest, very frustrating at times, was the fact that since the Church of England first established a doctrine commission in 1921, I mean, that in itself is quite late, isn't it? It's interesting. 1921 is the first doctrine commission. It's gone out of its way to appoint leading theologians, Anglican theologians, but leading theologians from the evangelical wing, the Catholic wing, and the liberal wing, onto every single committee that produces a theological report. <laughs> you can imagine, therefore, what it's like trying to establish what the theology of that report might be. At best, it's going to be a kind of synthesis. At worst, it will be a lot of things you know, all in juxtaposition sitting next to each other. Um, doctrine... I would argue, is seen as a process in the Church of England in which all members are involved and this process is therefore inherently inclusivist, even if the resulting theology is not quite as easily defined. The 1987 Doctrine Commission report stated, God is known primarily and characteristically in the shared worship, shared experience and shared reflections of men and women who meet in his name and serve him in the world. 
This is a typically local and parish level statement and it shows how theology in the Church of England is essentially practical and done from the bottom up. A final and connected point here is that no decisions or reports or motions are passed in the Church of England unless they go through all three houses of a general synod. The House of Laity, the House of Clergy and the House of Bishops. It's neither a confessional church nor a scholastic church. It lacks a strong magisterium and its doctrine is what is best described, I think, based on, on that method of having everyone on the, their committees as mutually corrective. I'll now give you a better flavour of this with a close inspection of one of the key areas for debate at the end of last century, which is multi-faith worship. In 1966, a motion was brought to the lower house of convocation, which is what it was called until 1970 when it became General Synod. And it stated that this house views with concern the holding of multi-religious services in Christian churches. The background to this was that in the 1960s, church services were increasingly being held in large London churches. I think the initial cause of this one uh, was a service held at St Martin Fields. Um, so large London churches or cathedrals for organisations such as Christian Aid, the World Wildlife Fund and the Commonwealth Arts Festival. The latter was known as a ceremony of religious affirmation and it was attended by the Duke of Edinburgh. The Queen, who is, of course, also the head of the Church of England, attended a similar service for Commonwealth Day. For the Reverend Stride, who is the person who brought this motion to convocation, the problem was that such services gave the impression to, as he called it, the man in the street, that all religions are the same, which, as he pointed out, made it even harder when he was trying to witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made particularly uncomfortable that such services were taking place in front of both the Lord's table and the font, he said, two things which spoke of something very precious to Christians. Kenneth Cragg, Anglican Bishop of Jerusalem at the time and scholar of Islam, spoke against the motion and said that he felt it was within the mind of Christ to make churches available to other faiths. But this was not a pluralist position. He underlined that the reason he felt able to say this was because of his own faith in the distinctiveness and uniqueness of Christianity. This is what one might describe as a typical inclusivist position. The speeches concluded on this occasion with the point that proclamation and conversion were the proper right of Christians and the proper approach to other faiths. This is clearly an exclusivist position and it was this perspective which carried the motion to be passed. A few months later, the General Secretary of the Missionary Societies in England issued a statement which said, while true dialogue should be encouraged, local churches are strongly advised not to provide for interfaith services. We then fast forward to 1991 and an open letter to the Archbishop signed by more than 2,000 Anglican clergy which demonstrates that multi-faith worship had continued to grow, particularly in cathedrals in large city churches. 
The result of this was that the Interfaith Consultative Group, or the IFCG, of the Church of England drew up a report to be debated in General Synod. Now that's interesting as well. So between 1966 and 1991, the Interfaith Consultative Group is something that is set up by the Church of England, the Board of Mission in the Church of England, uh, in 1977, I think it was. So it was seen as something that uh, was necessary and they were a theological advisory group as well. This group had members who would describe themselves in each of those three categories of the, the threefold typology. Many wrestled with the fundamental problem of believing on the one hand in the finality of Christ's revelation and believing that that rendered multi-faith worship impossible and then this legal fact of hospitality on the other. The first thing that the Interfaith Consultative Group report did was to tackle the problem of definition. And they said, is multi-faith worship a service of one faith, which other faiths are welcome to attend? Is it a service where lots of elements from different faiths are blended together? Is it helpful or not helpful to call it, instead of worship, a celebration or an observance or even a meditation? And then they ask questions like, are people of different faiths doing intrinsically the same thing when they worship? Or is it a matter of doing different things side by side? The report makes the point that multi-faith services are occasional additions to regular liturgical life in the church and not a substitute for it, whilst also making the point that interfaith is not a new religion. The report then goes on to a series of real-life situations and questions, which are fascinating, actually. So, for example, they come up with, a new, the new mayor is Sikh, but has asked for a Christian chaplain and a civic service in the parish church to mark his year of office. Nevertheless, it's clear that he would be glad if some affirming reference to his own faith could be included in the worship. He suggests a reading from the Guru Granth Sahib. The questions which the Interfaith Consultative Group raise are as follows. Is this request acceptable? What will it mean as part of a Christian service? If it's refused, what impression is given about the place of Sikhs in civic life? And what impression is given of Christian tolerance? If the next mayor asks for a service in a mosque, how should Christian counsellors respond? It's interesting to note that the authors of this report, so it's a 1992 report, note that our attempts to achieve a consensus on the central Christological issues have, to a significant degree, failed. I love the fact the Church of England is prepared to put this in its introduction to reports. They also say, a full consensus on such issues is never likely to be reached. When you bear in mind that both Bishop Nazir Ali and Alan Race were sitting on the same committee, it's not entirely surprising. <laughs> so in the end, they fall back on practicalities with the following suggestions. Learn as much as you can about the faith which is new to you and about their place of worship. Build relationships with other faith communities. Share non-contentious areas of life together, meals, concerts, walks. 
<laughs> I can't even believe this one's in there, but it is. Do not wear t-shirts with religious slogans such as Jesus saves. <laughs> Be aware of the symbolism of hospitality and generosity and compassion which visiting another place of worship demonstrates. If you invite other faiths to worship in a church, do not sit them on the front row where they can't watch what everyone else is doing. Explain that it is not acceptable to receive the bread and wine and explain what it symbolises. In the end, the group reminds priests in the Church of England that canon law requires two key things of them. B5, to use authorised forms of service considered suitable for the occasion, and F16, which states that anything which takes place in a church must befit the house of God, it must be consonant with sound doctrine and make for the edifying of the people. Any multi-faith worship should take care not to become a showpiece, to be performed, as it were, in front of other groups. You might not believe that you're praying together, but you are praying in each other's presence. And the final conclusion is that the ideal solution, which is interesting, I think, in the context of Oxford, the ideal solution may be a multi-faith pilgrimage, where each faith community can offer its own brief act of worship. So after reading this report, I then went on to consider the debate which took place about it in General Synod to look at what might be called its reception history in the hope that I might be able to draw some conclusions or start to draw some conclusions about the kind of theological approach in the Church of England. Many people argued that whilst the report assumed that multi-faith worship was correct and was offering a justification for it with practical advice, their own feeling, and this was a significant group of people actually in uh, the debate, their own feeling was that multi-faith worship was not acceptable because the only acceptable approach to those of other faiths was to try and convert them. So despite the fact that you have this report that has been written by a group of uh, theological experts in the field um, and the sense that it is timely and necessary and it's brought before Synod, nevertheless the, there was a strong feeling in Synod um, that, that, that this was making an assumption that multi-faith worship was okay and as far as they were concerned it wasn't okay to start with. So that's, that was interesting. Several speakers raised the fact that the foundational biblical texts from John and Acts, which I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, were not present in this report. For this reason, one speaker said that one should not claim that this report has scriptural support when it does not. Indeed, astonishingly, actually, I think, the Archbishop of Canterbury spoke against the report, criticising it particularly for its lack of theology. In fact, there is a lot of theology in the report, but not the clear-cut exclusivism that he would have preferred. With Bishop Michael Nazir Ali, the Archbishop argued that Christ's revelation was full and final. It's probably worth noting that only in a truly democratic ecclesial body could the most senior bishop speak against a report, which then continued to be debated at length and was ultimately passed, despite the fact that he himself didn't agree. One of those who spoke against the Archbishop said, and this is, I, I quote, is that right? The New Testament does not contain full or final revelation, in my opinion. Indeed, it itself teaches that a full revelation will be the continuing work of the Holy Spirit and will be complete only when the story of humanity is complete. 
Against him, people tried to pass an amendment which deplored the use of consecrated church buildings for multi-faith worship, but the amendment was defeated. And in closing the debate, the Bishop of Wolverhampton, the Right Reverend Chris Mayfield, said, We need a more Christocentric perspective, not less. The alternative is not a theocentric position claimed by John Hick and Keith Ward. What we probably need is a Trinitarian perspective, which allows us to understand God as Father of all creation, which allows us to see the Son, who in Jesus comes among us in saving love at Calvary, and which reminds us of the sustaining, renewing life of the Holy Spirit, leading us surprisingly and in unexpected directions. This speech, and actually many of the speeches, are really, really worth reading in the Synod debates. I'm going to have you all rushing off to go and look at general Synod debates. But the longer speeches particularly, um, by some really extremely impressive people. I mean, Kenneth Cragg speaks a lot um, in Synod. Um, And the speech here, I think, shows that um, Synod debates often allow for a much more developed theology in its own discussions than the reports themselves are able to offer. The report suffered from the fact that it couldn't come to a consensus. However, the Bishop of Wolverhampton's closing speech points in the direction of a theology which would start to become extremely important in the next few years of the debate, which is the recovery of a theology of the Holy Spirit in the Trinitarian context. This whole area of the theology of religious pluralism kind of picked up and ran with um, the orthodox approach, particularly Nicholas Losky and others, uh, who recover this sense of the Holy Spirit um, as part of their theology and are able to see this as a way of working out a more inclusivist uh, perspective. The motion which was passed in the debate of 92 commended the report for study in the diocese. Few, after all that, it did actually commend it. Um, It also encouraged further attention to the theology of multi-faith questions and asked for a set of guidelines to be produced which could guide bishops as well as clergy and laity. Because in the final analysis, if you come up with a service that you want to do for multi-faith worship, you have to supposed to uh, take it to the bishop and say what do you think is this okay and what the bishops were saying as a result of these uh, debates was we haven't got a clue if it's okay or not you know we want we want guidance ourselves on whether it's okay so the interfaith consultative group uh, drew up a set of guidelines in 1993 and these made it clear that multi-faith worship was acceptable and it was to be encouraged but it had to be encouraged within certain parameters The theological and spiritual complexities of something as seemingly innocuous as multi-faith worship were now made explicit with a careful list of questions for any organisers and for their bishops who had to give final approval. The list begins with what will be the pastoral and spiritual impact of this event on those present and those who hear about it. I've argued that the Church of England's theology will always be shaped by the hospitality which being an established church necessitates, and that this intention with some more exclusivist theology will inevitably lead to a kind of via media. However, as some of the contributions to both the report, the guidelines and the debate show us, this is is not a via media of inclusivist theology, much as we might expect it to be. In the end, I would probably characterise the Anglican approach as a type of exclusivist inclusivism. 
if that's not too much of a mouthful. There's a passionate belief that Christ is indeed the way, the truth and the life and that any encounter with different faiths is likely to include some sense of witness to this. However, as the established church, there is also the recognition that the witness may be done through hospitality, compassion and kindness and the symbolism which is inherent in each of these. In itself, the position represents the inherent tension that the Church of England is constantly trying to hold together using this method of mutual correction. In this case, the corrective produced by the report and the debate is a corrective to the pluralism which had been evident in some of the unthought-out early forms of service of multi-faith worship. This is the process by which the Church of England does its theology. It's a theology based on an ancient understanding of tolerance and via media, which does lead to a naturally inclusivist perspective. However, as this case study shows, it is a clearly informed theological inclusivism. The final section of the guidelines includes an apt way of bringing this discussion to a conclusion whilst illustrating what I mean by exclusivist inclusivism. Echoes from the impact of the debate can be heard, whilst it also provides a clear sense of direction for any future case studies which might be brought before the church. In the end, it will be a matter of judgment, or more precisely, a question of discerning the ways of the Spirit. We must be open to the Spirit, who often works in surprising ways. This does not mean that anything is possible. Christians do not want to engage in idolatry or to deny Christ. The theological principle must be an open-hearted loyalty to Jesus Christ, which honours both his uniqueness and his universality. Thank you very much. It is, of course, an historical uh, thing. So there's also that sense of, you know, have we changed radically since then? Do you want to start there? Or yeah. no? <laughs> I'll leave people to, to ask questions.